Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Society Publishers' books are so green, you could eat them. We print all our books in North America, never overseas, on 100% post-consumer recycled paper. We've been a carbon-neutral company since 2006. Our employees are shareholders, and we are a certified B Corporation. At New Society, we care deeply about what we publish, but also about how we do business. Find out more at newsociety.com. All right, everybody. Before I get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about a new project that I've just launched. Now, after years of highlighting and promoting the knowledge, wisdom, and projects of innovators and leaders in regenerative living through this podcast, I've realized that this audio format can only ever reach so many people. There are so many others out there who engage more with other forms of learning. That's why I've started the Abundant Edge YouTube channel. Now that I'm back on the road and visiting regenerative and sustainable projects in my travels, I'll be profiling the people and organizations that are making a real impact on their environments and their communities. My goal is to show as many people as I can reach that you don't have to have a lot of money, access to a ton of resources, or have a fancy education under your belt to make a real difference in this world and create change. Now my first mini documentary highlights the unbelievable achievements of a small community called Kishaya in the highlands of Guatemala. More than 30 years ago, the land where the village is located was owned by a plantation owner who kept the ecosystem under monoculture cultivation and exploited the local people who worked for slave wages on the farm. After the owner defaulted on his loans, the bank repossessed the land and offered it back to the local workers as payment for the wages owed to them. The villagers then redistributed their terrain among the original 80 families who took back control of the plantation and divided it equally between themselves so they might care for it and create a better life for their families. Now, decades later, the descendants of these pioneers have helped to transform the land into a profound abundance which you'll see in the documentary. Now, if you want to see the rest, you'll have to check it out for yourself. You can find it really easily just by typing in Abundant Edge into the YouTube search bar. And be sure to keep an eye out for more short films highlighting the projects that I visit as I travel through Mexico and beyond. I'll also be releasing tutorials on everything from design theory to building and gardening techniques in the upcoming months. I really hope that this will become a resource that, like the podcast, helps to inspire you to live your highest potential by living regeneratively. Today I'll be kicking off another month dedicated to an important topic in regenerative living. For a long time now, our food system has been a primary indicator for so many markers of health in our society. From the way that our food is produced, what kinds of food we eat, how we cook, how it affects our health, and even our ethics as consumers. Now for the next few weeks I'll be taking a look at our food system from a variety of different viewpoints and analysis in order to shed light on some of the lesser known factors that influence how we eat and how our dietary choices shape the food industry at large. To kick off this series I spoke with John Steinman, author of the new book Grocery Store, The Promise of Food Co-ops in the Age of Grocery Giants. Now John has studied and worked with everything about food for more than 20 years. He formerly produced and hosted a popular podcast called Deconstructing Dinner, and was a writer and host for a web series by the same name. 
He also now curates the annual Deconstructing Dinner Film Festival of compelling food documentaries. Now, John was also an elected director from 2006 to 2016 of the Kootenay Co-op, Canada's largest independent retail consumer food co-op, serving as board president from 2014 to 2016. Now, I consider myself fairly well informed about the food industry from personal research and the fact that in the last decade, I've worked directly in many branches of the industry from refrigerated shipping, industrial farms, organic farms, fish processing, many different roles in restaurants, and even the permaculture farm that many of you have heard me talk about for over a year now. But I never knew so much about the influence that the giant grocery chains and supermarkets have on every aspect of our food, from how it's grown all the way till it gets to our plates. Now this is a very eye-opening look, not only at the broken aspects of the food industry, but the very tangible and accessible solutions that co-op grocery stores can be. Not only for getting access to better food and transforming the way the industry is incentivized to operate, but also for the positive impact that co-ops can have on our communities and local economies. We also talk about solutions for access to high-quality food for low-income neighborhoods and much more. So before I give it all away, I'll hand things over now to John. Hey, John, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. How are you doing? Doing really well. Yeah, thanks, Oliver. Enjoying the, uh, the spring coming in here. So where are you calling in from? Sorry, I didn't even check in before. Yeah, well, I'm in uh, Nelson, British Columbia. So that's uh, pretty much as far away from any major city that you can find in uh, southern British Columbia. So I'm about eight hours east of Vancouver, about seven hours west of Calgary, not too far north of the uh, U.S. border. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, I see. I haven't actually been through that area, though I have family in Vancouver and the Calgary area. Um, but we've had volunteers here at the farm from there. And from everything I've heard, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's what drew me out here in the first place. You know, I, uh, I grew up in Ontario and came out here about uh, 13, 14 years ago now. And, uh, you know, it's a small place. There's about 10,000 people in the city, maybe another 10,000 in the surrounding area. Um, but, you know, people come here from all over Canada, all over the United States and few other places from around the world and uh, so there's a bit of a cosmopolitan feel in a small community. Marvelous. Well, hey, look, I've got a ton of questions that I would really love to ask you about your new book, Grocery Store, and there's just so much to unpack, uh, to unpack from the topics here. So what do you say we just jump into the questions? Let's jump into the questions, but, but hey, let me first um, tell you that the title, it's funny, you know, the title of the book is Grocery Story. And it's been this interesting journey so far um, in this early stage of having published or just about to publish a book. Uh, you know, the name is Grocery Story, and it's, it's interesting how many people see Grocery Store. And certainly online no, as well, like, Google wants to autocorrect every time you type in Grocery Story, it wants to autocorrect it to Grocery Store. So oh, I'm so glad you corrected me because like I did notice that when I was reading through it and it just slipped my mind as I was saying it. I'm kind of tired today. So thank you for clarifying. Yeah. You know, I think it's going to be uh, something I'll be doing for the next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see if we can justify that screw up and, and redeem myself later on. How about we start by getting a little bit of your background and tell me how you became interested in defining food systems and how the story of grocery chains and the expansion of their monopoly has really had an impact on the food system that we interact with? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, um, in the book, I, I share quite a bit of my personal journey into this. And it, I, I think I felt 
that I wanted to share a bit of that personal story because by and large, there isn't a lot written about grocery stores, um, which is fascinating. You know, there was a book that came out a couple of years ago um, that does dive deep into the grocery store sector. Uh, but beyond that one title, there wasn't much and isn't much out there. And so I felt, you know, compelled to share a little bit of my personal story because for me, I have been a food journalist for the better part of the past 15 years. Uh, you know, I started writing restaurant reviews and, and diving a bit more into the sort of culinary side of things. And it was really my appreciation of food that kind of drew me into looking, as you say, more into what, you know, might be considered food systems, which I imagine most of your listeners are familiar with, which is really all of the, the parts making up getting food from the farm, even all the inputs that go into the farm, um, getting food from the farm to our kitchens, and all of those moving parts in between would be considered the food system. And, you know, my first foray beyond just eating and appreciating food, my first kind of entry into that was studying at the University of Guelph for four years, where I studied restaurant and hotel management. And it was there I developed this appreciation for food, but it was also there where I started to really learn how disconnected the various parts of the food system were from one another. So here I was learning how to um, manage a restaurant, uh, and yet all of the pieces beyond the, the, the walls of that restaurant weren't really being shown to me. Uh, in particular, where all the food was coming from. And it was a fascinating thing that I, it took me years to eventually realize how disconnected this was because not only was I learning this at the University of Guelph, but I was doing it right beside the largest agricultural school in the entire country and all of Canada. Um, and so when I left university after those first four years, that really began this journey of trying to learn more about, you know, what are all these pieces that make up the food system um, and in particular, uh, I wanted to learn why is it the food that I started to appreciate the most, which was the, the most local, freshest food possible, why was it so difficult to find that food uh, at grocery stores near my home? And so that was back in 2004, where I really started to ask those questions. Um, a couple of years before, really, this kind of real strong interest in local food first began. And it took um, many years before I really started to appreciate just how important the grocery store piece of the food system is. You know, I spent um, many years uh, hosting a radio show and podcast like yours. Uh, I spent, you know, 40 hours a week researching everything about the food system. Um, and it took me many years to finally realize, wait a minute, you know, there's this one piece within the food system it doesn't really get a lot of attention. You know, there's a lot of attention going into farmer's markets, a lot of attention going into growing our own food, um, cultivating, you know, that relationship directly with, with growing food. Uh, and yet this one very penetrating strand of the food system where, you know, by and large, and I've sort of, you know, as I say in the book, uh, calculated 94% of all food purchases are going through grocery stores or some form of food retailer you know, why is it this very penetrating strand of the food system hasn't received a lot of attention? And so, um, you know, that in a nutshell is sort of the journey I took to finally get there. That is fascinating because so many people have come from different directions and points of interest or study to find uh, a relationship and how they interact with their food system. And it's great to hear from yours as well. 
But let's focus for a second on the rise of the grocery giants. And you go into great detail in this in your book and sort of how their business models shaped the way that we produce, distribute, buy, and consume our food. Because it really is a very overarching influence on every level of this industry. It is. Um, and, you know, it, uh, I think the, the, the best entry point into that, specifically into this, you know, question, well, how does the grocery sector shape the food system? Uh, you know, and one example that I use in the book is really the actual shape and structure and flavor of our food is very much determined by the demands that grocery stores place upon the food system. So, you know, it, in many ways, we as eaters, as consumers, we do help dictate, you know, what ends up being grown and produced. But if there's only so many options available to us, whether it's the options that are on the shelf of the store when we walk into the store, like if there's three or four types of tomatoes, or even just two or three options of grocery stores near our home, uh, we're not really all that uh, powerful, I guess you could say, in terms of determining the food system. It's really the stores that are providing the choices to us that are really, as I see it, dictating what's grown and how it's grown. And so, you know, I speak of the shape of the, of, of the food. So that is in and of itself a really good example where we can walk into a grocery store and by and large, the conventional grocery stores, particularly that we walk into, you know, you can imagine standing in front of the, the, the case or shelf of tomatoes. And usually they all pretty much look the exact same. And of course, a lot of that has to do with being able to package those in the right size boxes for that tomato to be able to be picked when it's green, often if it's the case of a field tomato where they're being picked green and then they get ripened in these uh, rooms where ethylene gas is pipe piped into the room and then eventually they get put onto a truck and within a few days they'll be anywhere in North America. In order for that tomato to be that perfect um, texture, that perfect firmness so that it can last in the trucks in the right temperatures, um, you know, it it led to this very uh, intentional breeding program among you know, many of the breeding programs you might find at universities or within some of the companies producing it themselves, producing the seeds. Uh, it led to this very uh, in, in notable intention over the past 50, 60 years to grow a tomato to, to serve that interest. And so, you know, this all really begins in the grocery store. So the grocery store is making that call and saying, you know, here's the tomato we want on the shelf. And then you can imagine all those pieces that extend from that all the way down to the farm, into the, the breeding programs and into the seed itself, it has dictated the types of food that's available to us. And, you know, from there, we, we, we have run the risk, and certainly this has been the case, of losing access to genetic diversity, losing access to um, really the diversity of flavor that I imagine all of your listeners are familiar with when it comes to, uh, you know, more of those garden varieties of tomatoes, for example, that we can be growing uh, or that are grown more, li more likely on a smaller scale at, uh, at, on smaller farms or in, you know, permaculture environments as well. And um, so, you know, that's just one example of the grocery stores literally shaping the food that we eat uh, right from the get-go. And then beyond that, you know, is uh, less maybe tangible is the way in which having only a handful of grocery stores um, who are 
essentially that go between the farm and the eater, when, when you have only a handful of grocery stores in between the two, the, 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 the farm and the eater, they pretty much are dictating what comes through in a way that that gate, uh, you know, I call the grocery giant gatekeepers. And they are determining, um, you know, how that food is going to get to you and what food is going to get to you. Uh, and so, you know, when I talk about the power of the grocery giants to really uh, dictate the food system, a lot of it has to do with this visual that we can imagine of a bottleneck where, you know, you have um, millions of farmers around the world and you have a billion, seven plus billion eaters. Uh, and then by and large, anywhere where we, anywhere we live, we usually only have a, up to maybe five different grocery chains um, determining what food is available to us. And so all of the food goes through this bottleneck. And so this is the bottleneck I speak of in the book. Now you mentioned how these industries have become increasingly consolidated, have really become a monopoly in many cases to the point where I think you said there's only about five real grocery chains and many subsidiaries within that. And this is having an increasing inf uh, impact, especially on consumers. How have you seen sort of the progression of these monopolies affecting consumers directly? Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, I think what, one example, uh, I walked into my, one of the chain grocers here where I live in Nelson uh, recently. And one of the things that we're starting to see on the shelves of many of the dominant chains is this interest in local food. And it's something that is, you know, close to my heart. It's something that I care about because it's the way I choose to eat. You know, I, I don't grow a large amount of my food. I have a small garden. I do rely on either farmer's markets or grocery stores. And what's really important to me is the ability for me to be able to access local food as, as easily as I possibly can and to support my neighbors and people I know. And so, you know, that's something that's important to me. So, you know, when I hear that the dominant chains are starting to invite local food onto their shelves, as many of them are now trying to do, you know, that's something that generally we'd want to celebrate because that's that many more that many more options for consumers um, to access local food and so it's disheartening though to walk into a chain retailer as I did not too long ago and to see that instead of there being local food on the shelf that says local food there's in fact food from places that you know aren't anywhere near where I live and so in some cases um, this is being done within you know the legal definition of local which in where I live in British Columbia is a very widespread definition. So to call something local in my community, it can come from anywhere within the province. And British Columbia is, is massive. It's this larger than most countries. Um, so you can have food coming from, uh, you know, 650, 700 miles away uh, and still call it local. Uh, so that's, you know, some of the local food that's found on our chain grocers. In other cases, uh, you know, I found food that was coming from across uh, provincial lines from as far away as Alberta, which legally is actually not allowed to be called local food. And yet one of our chain grocers here is calling it local food. Um, so, you know, this is something that to kind of come back to your question is challenging the availability of local food in our communities because it's starting to water down this, um, 
it's watering down the ability for actual local producers to market their product as local and gain value from that definition of local. So if all the chains are starting to water down local so that local means really the entire Western portion of Canada, which is very much what, what the chains out here are doing. Um, and, you know, I can say I can, I've found many examples of this in the United States as well, or in Eastern Canada, uh, then we, we start to lose value for those small producers who really rely on their ability to market themselves as, as being local. Uh, so, you know, the, the struggle and challenge of producing local food uh, is already on its own a struggle, and it doesn't make it any easier when you have these chains that are starting to see value in the name local, but in order to really deliver it genuinely, there's a need from what I see for them to water it down. Um, and so you have, you know, as is the subject of my book, the, the, the promise of food co-ops, so community-owned grocery stores who have gen generally been very transparent and integral and honest about, you know, local food being actually from within a small local bioregion. And so you have this also challenge now among our community-owned grocery stores to really, uh, to really ensure that the food that they rely on to differentiate themselves can be, you know, a viable business for small scale producers to be in. So this is, you know, one of the challenges right now within the food system and one of the ways in which these grocery stores, uh, the chains, the, the grocery giants are shaping the food system. Uh, you know, I used the example earlier of the tomato and there's now this example too of, of shaping the ability for local food systems to thrive. Yeah, see, this is fascinating because I remember when I first realized that many of these labels that are put on food products to attract us to buy them, especially to attract a more uh, ethical or conscious consumer, things like all natural or local or, you know, even organic, depending on where it is, is not protected by law the way many people would assume. And it, especially in, in cases of things like all natural, there's no standard. Like, it doesn't have to comply to anything. It's mostly just a marketing ploy and it sounds good. And it really waters down the expectations or the standards for things that really are produced at a high quality and are handled with care along the journey. And like you said, it starts to discredit some of the, the legitimate products that consumers are looking for when they realize that there's not actually much meaning behind these labels. Well, and you know, and everyone's familiar with how this happened as well with organic food, you know, where organic food was often for, you know, I think a long period of time, somewhat synonymous with food that was from your area. Uh, you know, generally the organic food producers um, were able to just, were simply market their product as organic uh, in their local communities. Um, whereas now the same thing is happening where, you know, an organic carrot grown locally close to me here in Nelson, BC, is the same organic carrot that is grown somewhere in California, uh, thousands of miles away. And so, um, you know, the same thing happened with organic, as you say, you know, natural is also uh, not defined in any way whatsoever. Um, you know, anything can be considered natural. And so, you know, this for me is what really drew my interest into the writing this book was to um, 
you know, was to, was to take a breath in a way, to take a breather and step back and say, okay, well, wait a minute. You know, if, if, if the labels that we rely on to really help communicate, you know, the food that we're eating, if these labels that we rely on are starting to not carry the meaning that we would hope them to carry, where else can we look to, 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 to find trust in our experience of shopping for food? Because, you know, the last, <clears throat> I think the last thing any of us want is to, to go into our grocery stores or farmer's market, um, wherever it is we're accessing food, the last thing we want is to feel like we're in some sort of battle or we're in some sort of conflict or we have to somehow uh, question everything we're buying. And I think to a degree, there is a role for eaters to be to scrutinize what we're buying, to be critical of what we're buying. There's, but there's only so much we can, we can handle. I, you know, we don't want to have to be the expert when we walk into the grocery store. I don't think that's realistic. Fatigue is a real thing. Yeah, and I think generally, you know, especially if you're, uh, you know, young parents and you have, um, you know, a child at home or two, three, four children at home and you're, you're shopping for your family, really like the last thing you have time for is doing the research and finding out where your food's coming from, finding out how it was grown. Um, like I say, I think there's a role for all of us to have a level of uh, wisdom and knowledge when it comes to our food system, but it is such a dizzying array of detail that it's nice to be able to rely either as, as at one point was to rely on a certification label, to rely on a name. Um, and of course, as we've been talking about here, that isn't always something we can be 100% certain of. So again, you know, I come back to, you know, what was it that drew my interest to write this book? Well, part of it was because it seems to me that one place that we should be able to place our trust in is the person selling us the food. And so in this case, you know, like I say, with 94% of food purchases coming from some form of food retailer, mostly, you know, your traditional grocery store, wholesale club or a specialty food retailer, we should be able to place our trust in those people. And this is where the idea of, you know, community-owned grocery stores first began, food co-ops, where, you know, rather than feel that, rather than actually be disconnected from the owner of your store, uh, who you then have to place trust in, so that might be, you know, someone who lives in your community who owns the grocery store, or it's a chain retailer that has a head office in some far-off city or some distant country even, uh, we can actually use the co-op model to become an owner of our grocery store. And so that's where, you know, this co-op movement has begun in many parts of, of the economy. Uh, of course, I focus on grocery retail, but it's this interest and this desire to, 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 to relieve ourselves of the, the challenge and the um, anxiety that can come from shopping for food, which is not to say, all food co-ops are able to be 100% perfect in um, purchasing food with the fullest integrity possible. You know, co-ops, I think generally though, are the most integral of all the grocery stores I've ever come across. And the, the best thing is, is if you find that your grocery store, even if it is a food co-op, is no longer being as integral as you expect it to be, you have the opportunity to exert, you know, this democratic right within your store to vote for a board of directors, 
that will then decide, you know, in most cases, who the general manager of the store is and who's running the store. And so every member has that vote. So as a, as a member of a food co-op, you have the democratic right to vote usually once a year for your board of directors. And generally, members of food co-ops also have significantly more power in offering either a complaint or coming forward with a suggestion and an idea. You know, those ideas are almost always responded to, they're, they're heard, and the ways in which food co-ops respond to members is, is unheard of in any sector of the economy that I've certainly experienced as a consumer. Um, so, you know, this yeah, certainly it's a very stark juxtaposition. And before we kind of unpack the structure of co-ops and all of the benefits, let's take a couple steps back for a second and talk about this rise of the regional food movement and how it has the potential to shift these monopolies and disturb the status quo of how our food is marketed and processed. <clears throat> yeah, well, you know, so the, the regional food movement, the local food movement has already done that, I think, in huge ways. Uh, you know, there's, there's both, I think, a pro and a con to what's happened with organic. You know, you have vastly, uh, these vast acreages now planted with organic food that 15, 20 years ago weren't. And you know, even if it is this sort of industrial form of organic, I think there's a lot to celebrate that those are acres that were at one point grown conventionally, and they're now being grown in this uh, using organic methods. Um, so there, there's that power, and that's the power of the, the eaters, that's the power of consumers, that's the power of, you know, the organic food movement to have done that. And, and the same, I think, we've seen with local regional food is this power to to shift what's already happened within, as I mentioned earlier, the, the conventional chains to start to pay attention to this. You know, it was just announced that IGA, which is this like um, large network of independently owned grocery stores, uh, you know, they are now offering branding to all of their stores to begin branding what hopefully is genuinely local in their stores as being local. So this is something that emerged out of the local food movement where you have pretty much every major chain on the continent starting to pay attention to this and starting to whether genuinely or not um, hopefully mostly genuinely offer these products on the shelves and so that as I see it has grown out of all of our um, interest in farmers markets in growing our own food in developing and supporting existing infrastructure within local food systems. Um, you know, so, so really food co-ops have been a part of that. Farmers markets have been a part of that. CSAs have been a part of that. It is this entire network of people who are trying to pres preserve and develop and grow our local food systems that I think is, is trickling up and reshaping um, you know, the dominant food system and starting to, and I think, you know, it will reflect itself and come back in. And, and, and I think to some degrees, even though, as I say earlier, I think there's a threat, you know, of that challenging local food systems. I think there'll also be some benefits from that where it'll start to make more 
economical sense to be developing and growing local food-based businesses um, because by and large, generally the population of eaters is that much more willing and supportive of that type of food production. And I think one of the things that you said earlier that really brings it home is the, the emphasis of network and how each one of these pieces individually um, from, from co-ops to, to CSA models to various aspects of the regional food movement, they only have a certain amount of power in and of themselves. But when they start to work together and collaborate, they really form, like you said, a network that has a lot more buying power, has a lot more effect on the consumer and can actually shift the direction that even these large monopolized grocery store chains are moving in and, and create awareness and respect for the fact that consumers increasingly are looking for oversight and, and quality assurance from the things that they buy and consume. Yeah, and you know, I think it's the, it's, it's the need for having that community or network of interests within a local food system that I don't, I don't get the sense that the chains will ever be able to truly be integrated within. Um, you know, the, the model that they operate on, the way in which they compete with one another, I don't think allows for enough room for them to truly be integrated into our local food systems. And so as much as we'd love to put our attention into regulating or legislating or just simply demanding that chains carry more products from local producers, um, because obviously in many places there isn't any other option than chain grocers or farmers markets, but of course farmers markets are maybe only once a week in our communities or in our neighborhoods. You know, Grocery stores, regardless of who owns them, have a responsibility in our communities. And I don't think the chains will ever be able to integrate into our local food communities the way a food co-op, for example, can. And, you know, one way in which we can see a grocery store, whether it's a food co-op or not, being integrated within a food system is the way in which some grocery stores, including chains, will actually allow for their parking lot to be used as a farmer's market. Um, once a week. And of course, that benefits both the grocery store, it benefits the farmer's market, it allows for people to show up and buy food um, from as many local producers as possible and then get everything else that they can't find at the farmer's market at the grocery store. And so some chains do do that. And one, some of the examples I share in the book, though, of food co-ops um, and the way in which they integrate into the food community in, in their local areas is through support of CSAs, for example. And many grocery stores will, many food co-ops will act as drop-off points for CSAs. So many of these CSAs also don't rely entirely on selling to their shareholders. They'll also rely on selling into co-ops or grocery stores as well. So it's a way to support these farmers who are running CSAs to also just have one drop-off point for their produce that's going into the grocery store as well as going to their members. Um, it also allows for the farmer to not have to stand around and deliver those, those bins of weekly vegetables, for example. The grocery store, like many food co-ops, do do this. I share some examples in the book of food co-ops who once a year will host CSA fairs. Um, so one of them is the Seward Co-op in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota who 
will host a CSA fair where people can come and meet their farmer who they might want to invest in at the beginning of the season. Um, you know, I, if I have my numbers correct, there's something like 40 or so farms that will show up at this event. And it's a way for, you know, eaters to link up with their farmer. And so it's, it's, it's actually quite remarkable that a grocery store would essentially be supporting what in the dominant marketplace would be considered the competition. So you have here this grocery store that's creating this space to essentially lose customers to say, you know, we're okay with you, our, our customer, going and buying all of your food from this farmer. But food co-ops, they understand that this is actually a benefit to them because to them it's ensuring that their supplier, farmer supplying them with food, has a diversity of markets to sell into, which every you know, anyone in, in business would want to make sure they have. You never want to rely on just one customer, whether it's just relying on, you know, uh, eaters at a farmer's market or just relying on a, one grocery store. It's important for these businesses to have a diversity of customers. And it's important for, uh, particularly for these farmers to be able to receive 100% of the food dollar rather than a grocery store to take some of it. So, you know, these food co-ops understand that in order for their suppliers that they rely on in order to differentiate themselves from the market, in order to, to, to adhere to their values of supporting their community, they know that these farmers need these other channels to sell to. Um, so it's, it's a remarkable example of how a grocery store can be an integral part of a local food system. And like I say, the chains I don't think will ever be able to get to that place because they're so in the mindset of competition that the idea of being able to act as a community, I don't think will ever reach the head offices of the largest chains in the country. Hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. Um, certainly when businesses get that large, they lose a lot of their flexibility or um, their nimbleness to react to changes in the market. Now, Speaking of these business models, let's go back to the beginning and define what a co-op is. How does it separate itself from these grocery chains that we've identified have really manipulated the food system up to this point? <clears throat> well, I think the, um, the most important way to differentiate between the two is like uh, co cooperatives are within the within all sectors of the economy um, and there are many different types of co-ops so you have cooperatives that are consumer co-ops which are the ones that are the focus of my book so these are cooperatives that are owned by uh, the people who shop and use and the services of the business so you can have a consumer co-op um, be a, a car share for example so i'm a member of a car share co-op and uh i am a consumer of renting a vehicle for example and same with uh with retail food co-ops you know i'm a consumer of the grocery store it's a consumer co-op then you have worker co-ops where it's a business that's owned by the workers um, you can also have a hybrid of the two where it's a business that's owned by consumers and workers uh, you have credit unions which are essentially consumer co-ops, they're financial institutions owned by the people who use the credit union. Um, so, you know, this is, this is the main difference between a co-op and a privately owned business is that 
co-ops are owned by the people who benefit from either the goods or services that the business is offering. Uh, so as an owner, you know, the biggest way to exercise your democratic right as an owner is to vote once a year for the board of directors, which similar to a private um, or publicly held company, uh, you know, these businesses will have investors or shareholders who are determining who the board is that represents their interests. And the same thing is the case with, with, with consumer food co-ops, where once a year, as an example, I'm a member of our co-op here in Nelson, BC, the Kootenai Co-op. Once a year, I'll go and vote for a board of directors who will represent my interests. And at one point, for 10 years, I was, the, I was a board director. So I would serve a two-year term, and every two years, if I wanted to run again, I would put myself forward, make a case, just like in any sort of uh, democratic process, as to why I should be elected as a board director. Um, and in many cases, you know, these are volunteer roles, or if not volunteer, there's a small stipend that board directors will receive, maybe credit at the store every month. Um, so it's a it's a way for uh, you know, you as a consumer to feel trust in the owner of your store uh, because it's you. <laughs> and uh, that's the biggest difference. And of course, there's many other benefits. You know, many consumer food co-ops will return a portion of their profits to their members. Um, so this is something that I think is really important. So when we walk into any grocery store, uh, there might be this experience that we have that the store is trying to take advantage of us. They're, they're profiting off of, of us. And of course they are, that's the case. They're, they're in the business of making a profit of, as the case with a chain retailer, of sending those profits to their uh, shareholders, which could be people all over the planet. Um, but in the case of a food co-op, it's not possible for the store to take advantage of its members or consumers because all of those profits that that co-op makes either go right back into the business that you're using and benefiting from uh, many of those you know food dollars that we put forward at the, at the at the cash are also going into community organizations into the community um, and anything that sort of is above and beyond what might go back into the business is often not in every case but often returned back to the members so there have been years where this has been the case at our co-op where based on how much I've purchased through the year, I will get a percentage of my purchases returned to me. Um, and we're not talking, you know, uh, thousands of dollars here. You know, I've received checks for $15. I've received a check for $100 at the end of the year. But as a business, this can amount to tens of thousands of dollars, if not more, that gets distributed back out into the membership. So it's not possible for a co-op to take advantage of its members. And it's a beautiful business model that is something that has existed for really hundreds of years uh, in a more sort of organized and sustained fashion. I think you can really just look back about 100 years or a little more to when really this model began to be formalized and started to grow over the years through, as I describe in the book, um, through various waves of development. And often they've coincided with um, usually economic hardship where we start to, and I say we as in the royal we, where historically people have felt they've been getting taken, taken advantage of, 
uh, perhaps the economy has faltered in some way where you know you start to feel and and see the hardship that's being created by the systems around us and it compels these waves of of response and cooperatives isn't the only way people have responded to those hardships but cooperatives have certainly been one of them and that's where we've seen at least with food co-ops we've seen that wave we've seen waves of food co-op development after the great depression we've seen waves of food co-op development um, in the sort of late 60s early 70s and again we're seeing that again um, now in this period which which as i say as i track in the book began around 2008 through now we're still seeing that development all right. So now that we have co-ops kind of defined in their structure, and like you said, they can be many other things other than grocery stores. Let's focus on what co-ops can do for a community other than just provide high quality food uh, from ethical sources. Yeah, you know, well, that's uh, a few chapters of the book right there. And, and, and one that I think really stands out for me um, that sort of goes beyond what's on the shelves of the grocery store, beyond the food, is by being a, a cooperative that's headquartered and located right within our community, it means that the, the head office of the grocery store is also in our community. Um, you know, so the model of, of chain retailers, regardless of what's on their shelves, um, you know, grocery being the example here, is that you have these, these outposts really within communities of this larger uh, chain that is headquartered somewhere else. And so a lot of the, the resources that go into running that grocery store that's in our neighborhood, in our community, a lot of the resources that are needed to run it aren't within our community. They're, they're, they're either in regional offices or in head offices. Um, and so this is where co-ops really differentiate themselves uh, and I think really stand out and really support our communities is that it places the entire head office of the grocery store often in the store itself, you know, so I would say about 90% uh, of co-ops are independent single store co-ops. So that usually means the entire staff is within the store itself. In some cases, you might have an office down the street or across the room where the head office is. And then you have another, you know, 10% of co-ops that have um, multiple locations, whether it's two locations or as large as is the case with PCC. Um, approaching, I think, 15 locations uh, soon, uh, where in their case, you know, they do have a head office that's outside of the grocery store, but is all within the Seattle area of Washington uh, in that example. Um, and so, of course, what this means is we have that many more people employed in a grocery store than we would a uh, pain retailer operating, you know, from a distance in our community. Um, so, uh, you know, if you take a example like Nelson BC and my and my co-op is the Kootenai Co-op where I shop uh, like I said earlier you know we're, we're a small community we have 10,000 people we're you know a hub for uh, a much larger population of maybe you know a total of 20,000 people who sort of use Nelson as its sort of central place of, of shopping and commerce and work um, our co-op is the largest non-governmental employer in the city so, you know, we have a Walmart in our, in our community. We employ more people than the Walmart. Um, we employ uh, 170 people. At, I think it's, it's, it's at least 170, if not more now, uh, at the store. 
So again, you know, the largest employer within a community of 10,000 people uh, with 170 people employed, that's not something you would generally find in a grocery store in a community of our size. No, yeah, that's um, significant. It's, it's huge. And, you know, it's a, I think for a community to look at its future and to say, you know, what, it, what is it that's going to uh, keep people here? What, what is it that's going to um, sustain everything else we love about our community, which in Nelson's case is the outdoors and uh, skiing. And, you know, these are things that we value here. Uh, you know, what is it that's going to keep people living here and enjoying this place? Well, it's, it's having meaningful, strong, long-lasting employment. And everyone needs to buy food. Everyone needs to access food in some form or another. Uh, and so grocery stores can service that in any community of any size, but can they actually employ a significant part of the population? And the chains just simply don't. Uh, and they can't because the, the human resources, as in the human resource uh, department, the marketing department, finance department, you know, all of these are located right within the store itself. Um, and so what this means, too, is that the people who are making the most important decisions for the store are people who live in the community, uh, who want to stay in the community for many years to come, if not the rest of their lives, and have every reason to show up at work that day and put all of their energy into making sure that the decisions being made by that co-op are going to benefit them and their families and their communities for many years, if not generations to come. And those are the most important decisions. Th those most important decisions tend to be made at that sort of higher, if you want to call it, level of the organization, uh, at that managerial level, where, again, those aren't decisions that are, that are being made locally at a chain. So, so that's just one example, but it's one that I think really stands out, and it's one that's easily forgotten uh, you know, when it comes to comparing this, this model of either a co-op grocery store or a chain grocery. Now, there's another issue that's become a, a hot-button topic, especially in recent years, and that's the idea of food deserts. And I've recorded podcasts with other contributors in the past who have really highlighted this issue, and I was really drawn to the section of the book where you talked about how co-ops can help to remediate the issue of food deserts in underserved populations. Can you talk a little bit about how they're able to do that? Yeah, and you know, I would uh, offer a disclaimer on that first. Is that um, I think I think the, the the promise of food co-ops and the possibility of food co-ops being able to to remediate food deserts. And it sounds like your listeners are familiar with food deserts, but um, you know, quickly uh, for those that aren't, uh, a food desert is generally defined as a as a neighborhood where a certain population of the, a certain number of the population or percentage of the population is defined as low income and is more than one mile from a full service grocery store. So we're not talking close to a convenience store or close to a, um, a, a fast food chain. We're talking like full service grocery store where you have access to fresh produce dairy, and all the things that, you know, we would normally consider to be a balanced diet. So uh, this would be considered a food desert if you're within more than one mile from a grocery store. In rural areas, it's upwards to 10 miles. And, you know, food deserts, although that term is defined for area or for neighborhoods that are um, 
you know, have a significant notable low income population, it's a it's something that does affect neighborhoods and communities regardless of income levels. You know, it can be a place that is of middle income or even higher income. But of course, in the middle or higher income, there's a much larger chance of having access to transportation. And so the issue isn't as dire because, you know, we can hop into a vehicle and drive somewhere. But of course, that too is not something we want to be relying on. So, you know, this idea of not having access to grocery stores is a, is a very significant uh, uh, concern. Of course, with food deserts, we're talking about the more dire uh, circumstance of really not being able to access a grocery store, particularly for people without access to transportation. So food co-ops as, a, as an alternative um, is something that I write about in the book. And I should say that I, I had no original intention to go into this area of, of subject matter in the book until I started to learn of what, what are um, starting to be a small number of communities who are looking at the food co-op model for that very reason. And so there are examples shared in the book, one in particular of a co-op in Greensboro, North Carolina, where you had a community there that had been without a grocery store for, um, I don't have that number in front of me right now, but I, it was over 15 years, I think upwards of 18 years, that the community was without a grocery store. And at some point within that time, um, residents had organized themselves and started to try to encourage chain retailers to come into their neighborhood. And none of them wanted to, you know, despite the area demonstrating that you could make a profit as a grocery store, none of the chains wanted to come in. And so they turned to the cooperative sector um, to, to consider that as a model to build a grocery store. So to to do as I as I described earlier, to um, encourage people within the community to become an owner in your grocery store, to become a shareholder in your grocery store, uh, and for many years they began developing that model. And so this is something that um, has existed now for this particular need um, for not very long. And they are, they were, and I say were because unfortunately just earlier this year they closed their doors. Uh, they were the first real substantial um, example of a community in that circumstance using the co-op model. And so, you know, as much as I want to say, I think this is the future and I think this is a way for, for, for these types of communities to find security in a grocery store model, it's still so early on. Um, and of course, we have this example here of what wanted to be a success and was a success in many instances, right? Uh, that they were able to open their doors and operate for a couple of years. Um, and yet it wasn't able to sustain itself. And so, you know, I think communities of all types, including low-income communities, they are looking at the co-op model. Um, I think it's still too early to tell, you know, is this going to be a model that can work? And, you know, my personal opinion is that I think it will. I think we're just in that early stage where it's trying to figure itself out because generally food co-ops have been much more common um, and almost synonymous with natural or what we might want to define as natural, organic and local foods. Um, and that's generally been how food co-ops have evolved. They've evolved in sort of that sector of the, the, the consumer economy. Um, but I think this is the next evolution in the cooperative model is 
is seeing this resource that's being created by you know the cooperative sector uh, being accessible now to more and more people and so you know you have groups like the food co-op initiative which is a nonprofit that has been supported by the entire co-op food co-op sector and cooperative larger cooperative sector non-food co-op sector um, to help support startup food co-ops and there's now a hundred startup food co-ops across the country and of those it you know there's about a half dozen or so that are what might be defined as these food deserts these areas without access to any grocery store whatsoever who uh, are looking to the cooperative model um, but like I say I think we're still in that early stage of, of knowing whether or not this will become an answer you know to that challenge well, and speaking of that, there are threats to this co-op model and things preventing it from taking hold mm. faster. So what, in your opinion, can we as consumers do to help these, these cooperative grocery stores to succeed besides, of course, just shopping there? Yeah, well, you know, I think, um, I think one of the biggest challenges co-ops face right now, and it's not, it's not just me who thinks this, this is sort of the... Um, the question that everyone within the food co-op community is asking is how does the co-op sector differentiate itself? Because um, like I said, you know, so many co-ops are within this local and organic food niche uh, and no longer is it really a niche in the sense that many of the chains, in fact, there's now, you know, at least a dozen natural food chains that have that have followed the Whole Foods lead, if you will, and are now um, growing at you know this at a similar pace that Whole Foods has at one point had grown. Um, it's no longer easy for the food co-ops that had once operated in this kind of uh, niche market to differentiate themselves. And so you know co-ops are asking themselves, well, how do we differentiate themselves or ourselves from the chain retailers? And there's so many ways in which they are different, you know, many of which we've talked about here on your show. Uh, and yet being able to communicate that is the biggest challenge. And so, you know, to answer your question, you know, what can eaters and what can consumers do? I think the biggest step that we can make as, as people who care about, mm -hmm. you know, our local food systems, who care about our communities is to, well, for one, like you say, yeah, shop at a co-op, but if you can't, or if, and, and of course, that's not the only thing we, we need to do. I think it's, we need to be able to, to inform ourselves about what differentiates co-ops from chains so that we can have those same conversations like we're having so that those conversations can happen in the stores. They can happen around the dinner table. They can happen on the street uh, in our communities. They can happen in, you know, just the everyday conversation. Uh, you know, the, the impact that has, that I've found in just having short, you know, two, three, five minute conversations with people about food co-ops, there is a lot of power in those moments to be able to, you know, inform of just some of the highlights, for example, from this conversation of what differentiates a co-op from a chain. And my experience has been that in offering just those little tidbits, like the elevator speech, you know, the elevator pitch, for example, that moment can be the difference between uh, somebody 
choosing to shop at a chain retailer or choosing to shop at a food co-op. And so I think that's the biggest step to take is, is to inform ourselves enough that we feel comfortable and confident to be able to, to share with one another why community-owned grocery store is such an important part of changing the food system, of supporting our communities, of ensuring that people who are producing food in our communities can keep doing it for many generations to come. Um, I think that's one of the biggest steps we can take. Absolutely. I mean, the education and awareness aspect of so many of the things that we talk about, not just with our consumption models, but like where our resources, our food sources come from, how they're produced, what hands touch them until they get to our plates, and every step in between, just figuring out how much of that we want to support and how much we would like to see shift is, is really important because these are not terribly transparent industries. There's a lot of complexity in them. And that's one of the things that I found most valuable about the way that your book was laid out is it made it uh, approachable. Like you could see the lineage, you could see some of the history about how we got where we are and how these alternative models have a real chance at affecting and transforming how we interact with our food system. Now, I'm curious, before we start to wrap things up here, could you tell me about, a little bit about your own relationship with food? You said that you started to work in the hospitality sector and you know, got more of a, an introduction into how things work through there, but even before you started your own research. And I'm curious as to how you, or, or sort of what were some of the most eye-opening things that you learned as you became more aware of how this works? Yeah, well, you know, I think um, as I, you know, as I, as I, I introduce the book in this way, I share, I share my experience, particularly as a, uh, as a food systems journalist. And so, you know, I spent five years producing and hosting a radio show and podcast called Deconstructing Dinner. And I started doing that in 2006 and I began producing it here in Nelson, BC, and it got um, syndicated on community stations all across Canada and quite a few in the US. And I did that for five years. And you can imagine, um, as I'm sure, you know, especially in your case, as well as a, as a host of a podcast, uh, every week that I would devote my time and energy into researching whatever the topic was on the show that week, every week it would completely change my reality and my relationship to not only food, but to the, to everything around me, to the world. Um, no longer, you know, was I living in, in ignorance or in denial. Um, you know, for example, the moment I learned of, of the, the factory farming methods for, um, you know, hogs for, for pork, no longer could I touch that product. Um, and so this was my life for five years, where not only was I, you know, sharing this information on my radio show and podcast, I was also like transforming my own relationship to food at the same time. And so I naturally uh, became involved in, in, in trying to source all of my food from everywhere but the grocery store. I spent all of my time invested in starting CSAs. Um, you know, I became involved in uh, helping launch uh, a, the Canada's first grain CSA. Uh, I was part of a vegetable CSA where I was going out to the farm and helping out on the farm. I was growing my own food. I was canning my own food. 
I was running a, an illegal raw milk collective because in most, actually in all of Canada, it's illegal to retail raw milk. Um, yeah, was, that's a wild thing that I wish we had more time to talk about. That in itself is is a topic to, to put a whole episode around. It's, you know, it's fascinating. I mean, I was, I was living a criminal lifestyle just to feed myself food that meant something to me you know, and was valuable uh, to me. Um, I was getting yeah. Talk about a strong indicator that our food system and legislation is broken when you're doing that, just distributing whole milk. And whole milk, uh, I was getting illegal apple juice delivered to my front door <laughs> because, uh, in this case, it was unpasteurized apple juice, and um, it's not allowed uh, to, to retail unpasteurized apple juice, or at least at that point, uh, it was. Yeah. And you know, same with the meat that I was getting. Um, a lot of it was illegal from like uh, unlicensed um, processors, you know, people who were processing the meat. Um, so, you know, this was my life. And, and I think what, um, you know, what's important for the, for the sake of, you know, the, the question about like, you know, how did that life lead to where this is now for me was, you know, I got to this place of personally just being exhausted at trying to, you know, sustain that lifestyle. Um, it was really fun. It was something that I would never give, I would never have changed. And in many ways, I still eat in similar ways. You know, I, I still access a lot of food from other places that aren't my grocery store. But I got to this place where, you know, some of these initiatives that I was a part of, um, and the example I use in the book is the, uh, the grain CSA. So this was CSA that at one point had 450 members. This was only in its second year. And we were sourcing uh, upwards to about $75,000 worth of grain from a nearby uh, valley, not far from Nelson, where we were supporting three farm families. We were getting access to, to oats, lentils, um, yellow peas, uh, various, form, various kind of varieties of wheat um, and spelt. And we had, you know, 450 families. And then as the third year came and the fourth year came, the number started to decline significantly. And as I began to ask people about, like, what, what is it? Why is it you're not buying your grain again this year? Uh, the answers were pretty much unanimous. Everybody was still sitting on that grain that they got in their second year or their first year. Uh, so the the excitement and interest and energy in the grain CSA, which within two years led to this 450 families signing on. You know, this was like uh, $100 a family at the time, eventually $125 a share, I should say, not a family. A, a share was $125. People were investing a lot of money into this. Um, and then yet, when it came time to actually translating that into action, which required every member of the CSA to either mill their own grain to turn it into flour uh, or to roll their own oats um, or to bring it once a week to a local person who would be milling it for, you know, pennies, you know, not much money at all in order to do that. But those extra steps of actually like taking it there or doing it yourself uh, wasn't something generally many members, I shouldn't, certainly not all of them, but many members weren't willing to take on. Uh, and mm. so that really just woke me up uh, because 
I thought, you know, this grain CSA, I thought this was the future. I thought this is what will transform our food system locally. Everyone in our community is going to be eating locally grown grain within five, 10 years, I thought. And sure enough, you know, that wasn't the case. And, you know, what this signaled to me was that as much interest and excitement as there is in these alternative models to accessing food, there's only ever, not, I shouldn't say ever, they're, they're only in the short term will be a small niche of people who are that devoted and committed, you know. And so I'm still one of those people in the sense that I'm still the coordinator of a flour mill co-op where there's 25 of us who co-own a flour mill and I still buy my grain from those farmers. And I do think that that is the future because it is, it is in that way that farmers can receive the most of the food dollar that they possibly can. You know, where in, in many cases with wheat, as an example, a farmer is only getting, you know, eight, 9% of the dollar, eight, eight or nine cents of the food dollar. Uh, and so that's not a lot of power in the marketplace. There's a lot of, uh, of that dollar that's being taken from where we spend the money to what they receive. There's a lot of other links in that chain. So being able to give that money directly to that farmer, to me, it is the future. But are we there yet is really the question that, that, that I came to in that journey for myself. And we are there to a, small de- to a small degree, but in the 10 years that spanned 2006 to roughly around the time I started to work on this book, or at least conceive the book, in that 10 years, the percentage of our food dollars, and I say we as in North America, the percentage of our food dollars that was going to these direct market approaches like farmers markets and CSAs, it, it didn't change much. I mean, certainly we saw the explosion of interest. No doubt there are more and more, there are more CSAs today than there were 10 years ago in a way that deserves, you know, a parade and celebration down the street, if not a national holiday to, to, to celebrate that. But mm. in the grand scheme of things, it, the, the percentage of our food dollars barely changed. And so what we have now is, like I mentioned earlier, still 94% of consumer food dollars going towards some form of food retailer. And so it was there through my personal experience and through um, just my experience as an eater and as a journalist where all of a sudden, you know, my interest turned to grocery stores where, you know, the local food movement and the interest among all of us to support new and alternative forms of food delivery and food access and food production, it just all started to, to funnel into this one place. Like, this is where it seems like we need to be putting at least 94% of our energy is into our grocery stores that are operating in our community because this is where, by and large, most people are spending their money and I think it's, it's, it's through transforming the grocery stores in our communities that we can make these alternative models of accessing food like farmers markets, like CSAs, like educating all of us and educating ourselves on how to grow food and keep those skills and knowledge within our communities. All of those things will happen when we can support our grocery stores if they're food co-ops, if they're this model of grocery store that we know can sustain itself well into the future because it's owned by the community, 
owned by someone who at, at, at any given moment might sell to another owner. Uh, so we have these stories that have demonstrated and proven that they support CSAs, they support farmers markets, they're supporting the same people who are sustaining those alternative models of food production. Um, these are the food co-ops that are the grocery stores that I think will will enable these alternative models and this alternative food system and this food system that is the one that I think is the one that will be the most sustainable. It's going to be sustained by this, this model of grocery store. Well, I got to say you make a very good and compelling argument through your book. And uh, to give people a little bit of context, I consider myself pretty well informed in general on the food system. I've worked in industrial farming, organic farming, permaculture farming. Uh, I even used to work as an engineer on ships maintaining the refrigerated cargo that brought fresh food from one side of the globe to the other. Yeah, um, wow. I have worked as a chef, a baker. I have helped to manage um, uh, farmers market stalls and like a lot of other pieces in between. And I got to say, this was like the biggest gap in my knowledge. I didn't really understand, though I have, you know, supported uh, local co-op grocery stores in the past. In fact, two of the ones that you've mentioned, uh, the, the co-op network around Seattle, I used to interact with quite a bit when I lived there. And the Seward uh, <laughs> co-op in, in Minnesota, close to where my brothers live, I've frequented as well. Uh -huh. And um, I, I honestly really didn't understand how big of an impact on the food system these large grocery chains were and how viable of an alternative this co-op model was though I had like a minor insight into it. So um, before I let you go here, could you share with our audience the, the ways that they can best get in touch with you, where they can buy the book and how they can find out more about this topic? Yeah, well, so the, the website for the book is grocerystory.coop, as in co-op, so .coop. And I'm going to be on a book tour for most of 2019. So I've got about 130 locations that I'm going to be um, over the next, uh, well, for the remainder of 2019. And I would love to meet, you know, your listeners if they're, if, if any of them are in the communities that I'll be visiting. So that tour schedule is on the website. Uh, the book is coming out. Um, I mean, the publication date is May 7th, but uh, it'll probably start hitting the shelves by late April. And uh, hopefully your local bookstores will have it. You know, like I think that to me is the most important thing is if you can support your local bookstore or find the, the book at one of your local food co-ops, um, that would be my recommendation. Uh, Otherwise, you know, it's available everywhere else you can find books. It's on Amazon. It's on, um, you know, every uh, online retailer that sells books. Uh, or you can order it directly from my publisher, which is uh, New Society Publishers, which I know your listeners are probably familiar with because uh, I know you've interviewed quite a few authors who have published through New Society Publishers. So the book's also available there. And, um, and there's distribution all throughout uh, North America and all over the world. And, uh, and yeah, like I said, I would love to, to, to meet your listeners. So hope uh, you can make it out to one of my tour events. Uh, and so that tour is running from um, April 15th, where I, my first date is in Rochester, New York. And I'm going to spend three months touring through the eastern U.S. until about the end of June. And then I'll be in Ontario for about a week. And then... Um, I'll start up again in the fall and tour through the 
the Western North Pacific Northwest, uh, British Columbia, all the way down into the Midwest, into the Twin Cities, and through Milwaukee, Chicago, and then all the way back up to uh, the California coast. Um, and so that's going to be in the fall. Fantastic. Well, look, I'll make sure to include all of the links for the resources that you just mentioned, including your tour schedule on the show notes for this episode. And I'm going to make my best effort to come and see you on the road too. I'm actually planning a trip to the United States in the summer and you're going to hit a few of the places where I know I'm going to be as well. So um, yeah, if we can make that happen, I really look forward to seeing you. If not, we'll stay in touch either way and hopefully do another follow-up as we continue to learn more about this emerging uh, resourceful and inspiring alternative that is really pushing the food movement in the correct direction. Hey, I, I appreciate the time and, um, and your interest. And yeah, I look forward to meeting on the road. All right. Thanks so much, John. You take care. We'll be in touch soon. Okay. Thanks. Oliver. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at abundantedge.com. And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.